today I'm speaking with Remy Ray, a leadership and performance coach who leads lots of people on one of her latest programs, The Shift, inspiring women and is one of the top neurodiverse women in the UK. Thank you for speaking with me today. No, I appreciate this. So I was wondering with your formative years in primary and secondary school education, did you feel that you were different or did you notice anything about yourself while in education that made you feel that you needed more support? Yeah, I always knew I had a something. I wasn't sure what that was. From as early as nursery, I felt different. I would write backwards. My mum oh. used to call it writing, but I would write wow. the opposite way. Um, and I guess nobody picked up on the fact that maybe my brain was just processing information in a different way, but it was kind of like a, a laughing thing, like, oh, she writes in the opposite direction kind of thing, um, maybe being so young. But, um, yeah, I always knew I was different. I always felt different um, with anything that pertained to academia. I always felt an immense amount of heaviness and strain and stress um, and even with a thousand percent effort, I always knew that that would still be not even mediocre, right? Below average. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting because for me with the writing, because dyspraxia is so different from dyslexia, it never presented in how I wrote, but with maths, I just was completely useless. I couldn't, there was, there was, I couldn't remember how to do certain calculations and certain things. Um, and I think, for me, I, I, it makes me think that primary schools should have a lot more support than they do because the yeah. child might just end up thinking what's, you know, what's going on and not be sure why they have certain challenges. Um, but that's, that's super interesting. Um, I was wondering also when you were formally diagnosed with dyslexia and what the diagnosis meant for you, did you find it an empowering thing to find out? No, not at all. I was diagnosed at the age of 19, just as I was about to um, embark upon my university journey, if you want. Um, I went to London College of Fashion and I did an access course because I was about a year behind my peers because I would fail a lot. And so I had to re-catch up or go and take qualifications elsewhere to be able to, you know, get into uni. And um, at 19, I think I wrote, a piece of coursework or whatever and the lecturer said to me you you should get tested for dyslexia and when you're when you're on an access course nobody pays for it but you once you enter uni the university will pay for it so I had to wait to get into uni to be tested and then when I was finally assessed and diagnosed um I actually felt an immense amount of shame because Mm. I didn't really understand like I didn't have an understanding of what dyslexia was anyway it wasn't language that I was privy to pre-university. Um, and also I just felt like it was another layer, another, another thing, another label. Um, and, and it wasn't cool, right? It wasn't cool to have another yeah. problem at that time. So yeah, I felt very othered if you want. Yeah. Did you, did your university have any support? Um... Yeah. So I got support through uni, but. it didn't make me want to embrace the label. It didn't make me feel empowered. I didn't feel, I felt like I just wanted to get through uni because I had always had this turbulent relationship with education because I knew something was wrong. I didn't know how to articulate it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even really know who to turn to, to ask for help and support. Um, It was just 
I just didn't enjoy education at all. Yeah. What would you say was a turning point in terms of your ability to draw strength and inspiration and also build community around your identity and how disability goes into that? How did you eventually find a way to turn that into empowerment? Because it definitely sounds like it was not an easy journey at all. No, it wasn't. It was very turbulent. Um, I don't know if I essentially... When you're in motion, it doesn't feel like the journey you're about to embark on is empowering of any sort, right? It's probably you seeking solace out of desperation. And so I turned to entrepreneurship very early on. At that time, it wasn't trending. It wasn't hot. There weren't many um, other black women operating in the entrepreneurial realms or being highlighted. And so, again, I felt very like singular. My friends weren't starting businesses. Um, I hadn't come from a family that started businesses, but I had turned into entrepreneurship because I could see that that space allowed me the freedom and creativity without judgment. Um, from, and, and it was almost like, um, like a side hustle, like a side operation outside of like my professional um, career or whatever you're supposed to be doing at that age. Yeah. Get a job. So I always had like another thing which felt like a secret in some way that I had to try and balance. Um, and it wouldn't be until around nine to 10 years later that I actually spoke publicly about being dyslexic. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. I mean, sometimes... I feel like labels are quite difficult because it can be, you obviously don't want to be pigeonholed or feel like it's a limitation on your ability. Um, I mean, personally for me, I found, interestingly, I found my diagnosis to be empowering because I didn't, it was like an explanation for things I just had no idea about. Um, and I'd been experiencing my whole life. So it was a, a relief. I think my only thing was, okay, what next? How can I actually level up and build and develop while also doing this? Because I didn't want to make that as an excuse for um, yeah. things that were going wrong or things things that could have been improved on. Um, yeah, but that's that's really interesting. Um, so did you find I that... Empowering, but I, I, at that time, this is what... 10, 12 years ago now, it wasn't an empowering space. There wasn't yeah. people shouting about being dyslexic at that time. Um, and that's why time is a great, a great healer because now we can have these open conversations around being neurodivergent, but then that it wasn't happening in that way. And, and, that's you, know, true. you know, applying for jobs and application forms and things like that. I had the capabilities to do the job, but could I complete that application to, yeah, I can fill my name out and stuff. But when it comes to writing about, tell us about a time when this or whatever, like I might not have been able to articulate myself well enough to sell myself via uh, a written method. Format. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I feel, I felt rejected for a very long time, job applications and stuff. My best friends would have to help me complete them. Um, and even applications for uni and coursework and things like that. It's just, it was a very, I don't know, lonesome kind of time. Yeah, definitely. I, and I can understand that. Would you say, would I be right in saying that your entrepreneurship and the work that you managed to build from the ground up and 
um, even securing funding for the diverse CIC and getting those sort of screening services out there for other people. Um, that's a lot of amazing work. And you draw a lot of confidence and pride in, in that work. And did that also help you to see your identity as a blessing as well? And yeah, yeah what impact did that have? I think that my work has always been around um, reminding people of their voice or that they have a voice and they can use it. I think my my entrepreneurial journey has been been around highlighting others so that they could see their highest potential. Um, and the diverse creative CIC is really about making sure that others don't have to have my experience because yes. we don't have it doesn't have to be that way anymore. And so what we do there is offer screening services and support services for other dyslexics, but it isn't just dyslexic exclusively about dyslexics exclusively because we, we've helped a plethora of people, but that's passion work for me. That's life work. I will probably always have a stream of some sort for people like us that are neurotypical um, to be able to guide support, offer insight, um, upskilling and things of that nature because I've realized the importance of it and then on top of that how community can really help you soar right in spaces where you're not always Definitely. understood um and then I think my work even with the plus size fashion stuff it's it's the same it's the same thread that's woven through everything that I've touched um contributing to a billion dollar industry that was also to give the women that had bodies like me the opportunity to have their voices heard in a space that for a long time rejected us. And so yeah. this is only in the last five years or so that I've realized my work, it may seem fragmented, but it's not at all. It's about helping people reach their highest potential. Definitely. Definitely. That's amazing. With your fashion work, I'm interested in how you, how it was developing that, um, in a time where, I mean, even now, the industry, the fashion industry, you know, there's all sorts of conversations around inclusivity and plus size discussions. But I do think that there's a long way to go. Did you feel that there were any barriers trying to get that out into the world? Yeah, absolutely. I think knowledge, a big one. I think it's it sounds great being a fashion designer, um, but when you're bootstrapping, that, that is also very different in itself, right? The experience that you have trying to find all the dots, then you realize that a high percentage of the factories and stuff are owned by a certain um, race. Um, and then you need a minimum set of orders. And then you don't have any mentors or guiders in that space that look like you that understand that actually you may need to go up to a size 26. But then they're like, why? Just keep it small. Don't do that but you're trying to cater for an audience that's kind of untapped. So it was just a, a load of different things. And I wouldn't change my fashion experience for the world because it just exposed me to thinking about things in such a different way. You know, I took myself to Vietnam to source factories. I've been, I've taken other black women entrepreneurs to China for sourcing trips so that they could understand the business from the back end. Um, so I really wouldn't change my experience. It was turbulent, no, and there definitely was barriers. You know, some others may have got funding for their fashion lines. I wasn't. I was mm. bootstrapping with my full-time job, trying to look after myself and trying to build a collection. I mean, for what I did put into it, I did um, receive some great 
like responses from bloggers and influencers and stuff. But when you're trying to keep a collection going and it's, it's very difficult. I mean, I was fortunate enough to show in Nigeria plus size fashion week and also Australia. So, I mean, those, those are great achievements for me. Um, I would have done more in that space, but you need money to do business at oh, that yeah. level. And I just, I didn't have the, the funds to be able to do it. Yeah. But it's amazing that you got it off the ground and you were able to sustain it for an amount of time because fashion is really cut through and especially the production aspects. Um, I don't even know a lot, but seeing black female businesswomen who have clothing or bags or accessories, um, it takes a lot. And when they do share certain things, it, it can be, you know, it can be quite eye opening in terms of suppliers and Fact, like dealing with factories and things. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's all really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask the, I wanted to ask as a business coach, what do you see? Cause I think it's an interesting job in terms of dealing with people and having unique cases with each, every single client yeah. you have. Yeah. Um, what sorts of commonalities do you find between loads of different clients that you have and common difficulties they face or things that they want to change or improve on? So specifically, 95% of the women that I coach are neurotypical, which also is helpful because I am them, they are me. So it gives us some context, right? So we can work with that now, no matter how they come you know, like one of my clients the other day was like, oh, I'm very messy. Everything's all over the place. I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> It, it just doesn't matter. And they've never heard that before. What they've heard is, why are you so messy? Why do you keep doing things like this? And so it's really about helping build up their confidence first so that they can see the pathway for them to begin to thrive. Because a lot of it is second guessing. I have not doing things right. It's a lot of heavy judgment. So I help them figure out how they can extend grace to themselves. So then we can clear the air for clarity and then position themselves for whatever industries that they're in because the women that I work with are you know they have vast backgrounds they're not like um one dimensional these women are multifaceted they're experienced they're smart but nobody's ever taken the time to nurture them and help them to support them on their journeys so it's 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 different I mean um coaching in itself like you said it is a very interesting space um because you're pouring into every single person individually, they all come from different yes. strands. Um, their, their abilities are all different. Their self-belief is different. Um, so usually I can only coach a couple of clients a week and then I need quite a, not long breaks, but a, at least a day or so between clients because it, you're pouring in from your soul, you know? So, well, that's yeah. how I coach anyway from a personal space that's business orientated um because i realized that the mindset is really key when 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 operating in business definitely definitely well it's really nice to hear that with your building relationships with them you can have a sense of a personal touch and yeah. um an openness um with them as well because i think that's that's really important for people to feel that talking to another human being who's not perfect and who who they can relate to. Um, yeah. And so, all my students have to come with that strand as well. If I coach from a very honest space, which they know, I'm not for everyone. That's 
that's also fine. And I understand that. And they understand that too. And so if they come in, then they know they can come with all that they have, even if it doesn't fit into what society says that that's the way. Um, and we'll figure it out together. You know, I stretch, I don't pull my clients. Like, I really like that idea of stretching, not pulling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think the work that you do at the diversity I see might, why it contributes to the neurodiverse community? I do think that the UK has a problem and things really do need to get better in terms of neurodiversity. So I was wondering what things you think would need to improve in terms of institutional access for neurodiverse people. I think across the board, like <laughs> throw the whole whatever you have in place away and let's start again. I think a lot of the initiatives and things that are out there haven't really listened to neurotypical people. And I think that that's part of the problem. You've decided what we need, need as opposed to working with us to figure yeah. out what our true needs are. Um, and, and a lot of this is othering. Oh, let's just create something. And then it becomes a thing on the side and it's not ingrained into the culture. Um, yeah. so with the diverse creative CIC, our beginning work, our foundational work is screenings. We're about to offer ADHD screenings and also dyspraxia screenings too, because yeah, there's a massive gap, right? People need these things, but they don't know how to access them. They don't know where they are. They don't know who they should go to. And then on top of it, a lot of the people that operate in these spaces do not look like me or you. They are old school white men and women that, you know, may have PhDs and stuff like that. And it's not always comfortable for people that come from specifically my community to sit down with these people and then digest the information and then, you know, figure out how that fits into their lifestyles and things of that yeah. nature. Yeah. The diverse creative CIC for a while was very foundational. Now um, I can use my voice as a neurodivergent person to highlight the issues, but then in the background, we can use the organization, the community interest company to enter spaces, you know, help with training, help organizations understand neurotypical people better. And then from a coaching aspect, I can enter into organizations myself, coach uh, staff members, management, leadership um, to figure out the best ways to support staff members because I've also had that experience right I have lived experience of working in corporate and being bullied because my grammar wasn't great or I spelt things wrong we didn't mm. have some of the softwares and things that we have now and that shattered my confidence as a young person embarking upon a, pe a professional career and so I had no choice but to become an entrepreneur because this space didn't accept me. This space didn't nurture me. This space didn't offer me any guidance or support. And so I had to figure out everything by myself instead of adults, you know, grown people in organizations saying, is there something wrong here? Is there anything we can do? They would spend their time sending emails behind your back, you know, shaming you and disgracing you and laughing and haggling. Like it was just a horrific experience. Um, and I think yeah. that organizations should do much more about that. I've, I've got friends Definitely. who are dyslexic, who are pulled up on grammar, pulled up on, you know, not using the right language or the right tone mm. in emails and stuff like that. Like a lot of us aren't taught these things. These aren't things that I've inherited through my community. These Definitely. are things I'm learning when I go into corporate environments and it's not forgiving. You know, if I post something on LinkedIn now and there's spelling areas, errors, 
that is going to get a side eye in some capacity. You know what I mean? So it's about embracing yeah. people. And if we are really shouting about diversity and inclusion, we have to understand that that is also multifaceted. It's not one-dimensional. It isn't just based on, you know, this organization's perception of what they think diversity and inclusion is. So, yeah, there's yeah. so much to do. I mean, I could talk about this for days, but there's a plethora of work to do. But from my perspective, the foundational aspects are really key. Then the training and support and then entering communities so that people understand these labels that are put onto them, right? And then from the other aspect, from the corporate aspect, as Remy Ray, the you know, neurodiversity coach, working with corporates and working with professional people so that they can find their self-worth again, their self-advocacy, right, and be able to see themselves as an asset. Yeah, definitely. And I, I definitely think entrepreneurship should not be a forced option for neuro, neurodiverse people. It definitely should be a choice. I'm sure if we yeah. Where you will probably see that a high proportion of people who are neurodiverse are entrepreneurs because they have no choice. Yeah, it definitely should be a choice. It shouldn't be that people are facing these workplaces with cultures that are quite toxic and then they have to turn away. Um, so there's a long, long, long way to go. Yeah. And I was wondering if there were any books or texts that shaped you or anything you've listened to recently that's inspired you or seen? Yeah. So I recently listened to uh, an interview with, uh, I want to say her name right, is her name Tana, the lady who started the Me Too movement? I don't, I'm not sure what her name is, but the black, black, black lady. The black lady, right. She was having an interview. I can't remember who she was speaking to, but it was a webinar actually um and it was broadcast in the uk because some of the questions i could hear the ladies were from the uk but she was speaking about just how taxing it is uh black girl magic black girl joy how we have to show up in a certain way right um but that's also a job it's it's a full time to operate from that space and that really touched me because i hadn't realized that so much of my work had been taxing i thought it was helpful but I didn't realize how much it taxed me emotionally, even spiritually in some respects as well. Um, and that's why a lot of my messaging now is around finding what your work is and doing your work so that we're not clogging up the pipelines, right, for other people who should be in those spaces because that's not really our space or we're in jobs, right, and that's not our job that we want, but it's somebody else's dream job, but we hate it, but we stay. And so just a load of thoughts around that. And then also now I'm currently listening to um, on Audible um, what happened to you, Oprah's new book, as opposed to what's wrong with you. She's reframed that question to what happened to you. So we can go back down the strands of trauma and things of that nature and reframe that what's wrong with you, like you've done something wrong, not understanding the it's beautiful and honestly it's just I'm really like dosing myself and listening to it because it's just packed with information she's working with a doctor um who's been operating in this space for a very long time but I think everybody who's experienced any form of trauma should go back and listen to this so that they can take back their power um yeah. so those two things in the last week and a half have touched my core my core yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how those, both of those deal with like shame and unpacking it and how to transcend that. Yeah. Because I mean, for me, I've just realized how 
dangerous shame can be when you haven't dealt with it, when you haven't addressed certain things, because it can really hold you back in unconscious ways as well. Yeah. But thank you so much for speaking to me today. Appreciate that. I wanted to ask no, where we can find you on social media for anyone listening. Yeah. So predominantly on IG, so I am Remy Ray, um, and my website, remyray.co.uk, or on LinkedIn, I'm always open to, you know, DMs, my DMs are usually open anyway, so IG's mainly where I play. Thanks for listening, everyone.